Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech news in the world to help you scale from 2 million ARR to 100 million uh, ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Olaf Austin, managing partner at TempoCap. Olaf, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very nice talking to you. It's, it's really a pleasure. Uh, as you know, we have uh, 100 plus episodes recorded uh, so far for, for the community. Uh, the majority of them are CEOs. And we started a new series also to cover the scaling up journey from the investor, investor perspective. Uh, we had AXA, Venture Partners, Faraday, Notion Capital uh, in the show, among others. And it's really a pleasure also to, to learn from, from your perspective um, how we can help those companies um, thrive uh, in, in the scale-up uh, ecosystem. So let, let's get to know more about yourself uh, and how did you end uh, founding um, TempoCap. So how, how did you end in this world of, of investment? So um, I've been doing technology investment for almost 20 years now. Um, <laughs> I've been doing it in a few firms. And the last one um, I was in before um, creating TempoCap three years ago was Draper Esprit in London, um, which is investing in technology businesses all around Europe. And um, we were linked with DFJ in the US. And then um, when Draper Esprit um, listed, we um, created TempoCap. And since then, uh, um, we've moved from two people to nine people now investing um, in the wow. UK, France, Germany. And um, people know us a lot for investing in secondaries, but now we're doing also primary investment in uh, late stage companies. And um, basically the main objective of the firm is to try to find, um, so that's why I'm very keen um, to talk to you, some businesses that can scale up so we don't go very early stage, two to three million. We try to find businesses that have um, 10 to 15 million of revenues, 10 is the minimum. And then we try mm -hmm. to scale them from um, 10, 15 to 50 to 100. Um, difficult to scale them beyond much 100 because at that point they get lots of offers to acquire the businesses. Got it. So typically, would you say typically post series C or uh, even post series B? Well, it's, um, it depends. Um, we've been in um, one or two companies where there were no other investors, just the founder. So then, you know, you could call it a series A or it's just a pure secondary uh, cash out, right. cash in. Um, but I would say most of the time um, we come in um, in a series C or series D. Yes. Got it. And in terms of uh, verticals or any kind of uh, specialization, uh, SaaS or marketplaces? Is there any area that you, or, or are you a sector agnostic firm? We're reasonably sector agnostic. Um, we tend to deploy much more capital on uh, software businesses. <laughs> and today, uh, of course, mainly SaaS um, businesses, but uh, we have some very good consumer good businesses. Um, we are reasonably sector agnostic. I think what is the most important for us um, if you think of a business around 15 million revenue is the team because the concept is proven, the technology right. is proven. Can the team scale um, the business um, in the rest of Europe and uh, very often in the US? Got it. 
Sounds, sounds good. And in terms of the most successful, uh, so are you able to share? I know it's always difficult to ask an investor to share some of your uh, names because you would like to share uh, all the names in the portfolio. But if you need to highlight three, it doesn't it doesn't mean that the other ones are not amazing as well. But uh, what would be the ones that you would uh, share with us? Well, perhaps I should share the three latest one we've invested in and. Um, you have a French company called Talentsoft. Uh, we are very happy with them. They are a human resource uh, software company where we've co-invested with Goldman Sachs, BPI, Francisco Partners. So um, very good co-investors, uh, more than 50 million of revenues. Um, so this is in France. In the UK, we're a very lucky investor in a company called Depop. Um, mm -hmm. It was a round of funding this yep. year uh, with GA investing 50 million. Uh, CEO is amazing, um, and they're scaling the business now to the U.S. very successfully. And um, in Germany, we invested um, last year in AirHelp. Uh, again, a great business with a fantastic team. And uh, if your plane um, is late by more than three hours, I really recommend you go and try their app because um, that's the best way to get your compensation. Uh, in terms of the most important investment criteria for you, I've already shared, uh, let's say, the team. Is there anything else? besides the team that is important for you uh, when you are considering a, an investment? Yeah, of course. Um, we will look first at the technology, how advanced is the technology, uh, how defendable it is, and how scalable it is, uh, because we're tech investors. Um, then we will look at the size of the market, um, because since we are um, late-stage investors, um, if the size of the market is two, 300 million, we're never going to make any money. So um, we need to invest in uh, businesses that have um, market, addressable markets above a billion and ideally more than a billion. We also very often look at um, markets where you have a US player who's been uh, successful because that proves that there is a need in this market and you can succeed in this market. Mm -hmm. um, then um, we spend, as you said, a lot of time um, and we should uh, spend even more time um, on the team, um, because the team will execute the business plan. Um, but also um, what we found out in our companies that are um, between 20 and 50 million, every year you will find two or three key managers coming in every year. So even when you think you've got a full team that is going to take you from 20 to 100, it never happens. It never happens. Right. So the team is incredibly important to scale a business. And what is amazing also today is you have uh, entrepreneurs that have sold their previous businesses. So um, if we look back um, uh, 20 years, um, you wouldn't find any European company who's an entrepreneur that sold its business. Um, 10 years ago, you had very few of them. Uh, the big difference now is you have new entrepreneurs who are very good, um, but you also have serial entrepreneurs who have made some money um, uh, for their taste, not enough money. Mm -hmm. And um, they are now starting a new venture, and um, <laughs> the aim is to have a very big exit. Most right. But what is very reassuring for us is they've done it before. They've grown a business. They've sold a business. They know the challenges you have in selling. They also understand that to make money, you need to sell a company. And, right. and therefore, um, we quite like to invest in businesses where uh, you have a serial entrepreneur. We've just... Um, done a few deals where this was a criteria for deciding to invest in options. God, that sounds, sounds good. And, and we, I, I loved what you said about uh, ones who have been founders before and 
they didn't make a lot of money in the last exit and now they want to be even more aggressive and they know much more nowadays they know how to raise funds they know how to market how to sell how to structure the team how all the mistakes that I've done uh, setting up the initial leadership team and evolving leadership team, all the decisions that were not made uh, during the process that should be uh, made. So now they are kind of trying to do this in a very compressed uh, period of time, also because they don't have the patience to be there for, for 20 years, uh, right? So they, they want to do it in five to seven, seven to 10, uh, which is kind of the world-class standard of going from zero to 100 million. Right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, most of them um, have made some money, and uh, perhaps for you and me, right. they've made quite a lot of money. <laughs> but um, it's quite interesting, they all um, want to make more with their um, later ventures, So, which is quite attractive for us, because then you can see you know, how much they sold the business for, let's say 100 million or 150 million, and then you know that the ambition of the management team is probably to sell for 300, 500, or even more. Um, and as you say, um, they've learned from their mistakes, uh, which is um, very helpful. I mean, th there's no problem with first-time entrepreneurs um, because they also have the energy that perhaps um, uh, serial entrepreneurs don't have anymore. Um, and perhaps they try stuff that, you know, should fail, but works. Um, but um, what is very different, I would say, in our market today versus 10 or 20 years ago, is you have all these serial entrepreneurs who have made, I don't know, 3 million, 5 million, 10 million, and now they're saying, well, I'm going to build a big business and I've learned from my mistakes. So um, let me explain to you how we're going to expand from 20 million to 100 million revenue. Absolutely. And we love to talk about uh, how the ecosystem or the tech ecosystem has changed, especially in terms of raising funds. So in the past, a lot of entrepreneurs would need to go almost begging to investors uh, to bet in their, in their dreams, in their vision for the company. Uh, and nowadays, the very good teams, the very good entrepreneurs uh, are having the opposite. Almost this is wanting to invest in them and work with them. Uh, and so we have interesting stories nowadays of uh, instead of having the entrepreneur almost uh, being present in, in the office every single day to try to meet the, the investor. So having the investor really uh, interested in, in working with them and know more about the business. Do you have any story where you need, uh, where you need really to fight art uh, or uh, to, to be part of, of that journey? Yes. Um, well, I, I'm not going to give a name because it wouldn't be fair, but right. no we, we, we've been in a situation uh, with one of our best companies actually in the portfolio where um, there was a secondary uh, opportunity for us. There was a corporate wanted to sell and the CEO had no time for us. Um, so we couldn't really transact. <laughs> and, uh, and luckily we, um, we knew the team of investors who were leading a new round of funding. So we told them we'd be very happy to join uh, the new round of funding with some primary money and at the same time we'll do secondary transaction. And so there's always a way of um, getting to a company um, and you have to sympathize also with an entrepreneur. If there's a secondary transaction, let's say someone's got 3% of the capital and he's got to spend some time with people he doesn't know, he doesn't really add anything to his business. Um, an entrepreneur is going to be judged on how well he's doing with his business. This doesn't really add anything to his business. So um, you have to be conscious that, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day of an entrepreneur and, you know, you have to work around it. So that's why also we like to put some primary money around a secondary investment um, because then it makes more sense for the entrepreneur. 
Um, talking about the time the entrepreneurs have for the investors, I mean, there's a very strong kind of growth at the moment in um, the economic cycle. There's a lot of money. Um, so it's normal that uh, with all this money chasing big deals, um, uh, some of the best entrepreneurs um, can cherry pick who they want to work with. Um, but it's not necessarily bad because as an investor, if you can add value to a company, then you have more chance of being selected as an investor. So um, we prime ourselves in helping our entrepreneurs to get into very large corporates, um, large banks, entering new markets. And since it's more competitive, it's just not only the money, uh, this helps us um, win some great deals. Um, so for example, in um, some of the cases we have at TempoCap an operating partner who um, used to be um, a great entrepreneur who sold his company three or four years ago. And um, this is a guy when you put him in front of um, um, a CEO, um, will kind of demonstrate the value that Tempo Cap can bring with the money. And, um, and then we have a much better chance of kind of um, getting a deal with the CEO. So I, I wouldn't say it's all black and white. It's just the money or it's just um, the entrepreneur. I think it's an ecosystem where um, you need to bring some value to the great company if you want to get them in, uh, get in, sorry. And, um, and it's true to say that it's the management team that creates the value. So it's not the entrepreneur uh, on his own, it's um, him and his management team. And it's not the VC also on his own that is going to create the value, it's the VC plus the management team. So that they work as a team is probably a very good thing. God, it's a very, very good point. And um, usually in the, in the podcast, we always discuss three main ingredients that we consider critical to scale up the business. Uh, the first one is completely aligned with what you just said about the leadership team, which is the team and being more concrete here about the leadership team, but of course, all layers of the organization are, are critical for success. Number two is uh, much more related with strategy. It's all about focus. This is repeated uh, a lot of times, but uh, and, uh, and importantly, uh, a lot of times also not practiced. Uh, and number three, much more related with culture, execution, communication. Uh, so let, let's start with the, with the first one, the, the leadership team. So, Something that we discuss a lot and, uh, and sometimes as, as a coach, as an advisor, as an investor, uh, it, is, it is difficult because it is uh, at the same time not our business. Uh, it's to try to help the entrepreneur, the CEO, and even the leadership team to not become the bottleneck of growth. Of course, they don't want to be, but sometimes having perspective about themselves can be very difficult, especially under a huge amount of pressure, uh, stress, uh, and, and very high targets that they need to uh, go through with, with their teams. Um, and one of the things that is critical is really to understand what you just said. Uh, a, a team needs to have three new leaders coming uh, every year that are specialized in each stage uh, of growth. So the question is a little bit open, but, uh, or too open, but how do we help those CEOs and those leadership teams to be aware of what needs to be done in each stage of growth and they have perspective on, on, on themselves and on their decisions. Yeah, so we come um, when the company has, as I said, 10, 15 million of revenues, normally there's around 100 people already in the company. Right. At the earlier stage of the company, the CEO does a lot and um, especially does a lot of the sales. Um, when you invest in a company that's got 100 people, um, 
obviously you need to scale the sales team, business development team, to be able to go from 15, 20 million revenue to 50 to 100. So one of the biggest challenge um, for the CEO is to put um, layers of um, managers below him that can execute. And um, it's quite challenging because to succeed at an early stage, uh, he needs to do everything very well. To succeed mm -hmm. at a later stage, he needs to manage teams of people who can execute. But if he tries to do things himself, he will fail. Because um, a CEO that wants to keep control of day-to-day um, -day activity of the company where he's got 200 people is never going to be able to manage people and empower his managers. And th this is a problem that you see in some companies where you have this great CEO for 50 people and he's totally incapable of managing a team of 200 people. Um, and unfortunately, when it happens, us as investors, we need to spend quite a lot of time with these managers um, and explaining to them that there's a different way of managing a company. And if they don't want to uh, manage this company differently, then um, we need to bring some either professional managers or um, bring people from um, inside the company to take the leadership. Um, but I would say um, delegating um, responsibility to middle management and therefore recruiting great um, N minus one management is an absolute key skill to grow from 15 million to 44, 40 to 50 million. And then um, if when you scale beyond 50 million, it's one step further. Um, you need to put um, N minus two managers um, that don't even have a relationship with the CEO that can <laughs> execute. So um, the great success of a company is when you have salespeople selling without the CEO even knowing that um, they are selling to these customers and closing these uh, sales. And at that point, you know that you have a company that can scale. So this is on, um, obviously on the, the sales. Um, then um, at a certain level in a company, you need to bring a CRO, which is very, very important. Um, today, um, linking the, um, the sales with the marketing, with the business development, is so complicated that bringing a great CRO um, helps enormously. And then um, what we have in Europe, um, which is less strong than the US, is um, um, the marketing bit. So we try to do lots of things. Um, well, most of the time, the American companies are very focused on kind of one application, one product, and they go very deep and they have a great marketing team behind them. So in Europe, very often, you need to explain to um, uh, management teams that marketing is very, very important. And being very clear in their vision um, has to be translated in a marketing um, approach that is very clear. Um, and this is not easy to execute. This is all kind of the challenge, I would say, um, that you see um, we face when we invest in late-stage businesses. This is when you create a three-year plan, for example, which we always do when we invest in a company and um, go with the management team on an offsite to see how you're going to execute this. These are all the challenges we face. Got it. This is very interesting uh, how, how much uh, world-class teams invest in category leadership on articulating their value proposition and being crystal clear. Uh, and it all starts also uh, inside the company. A lot of times on those kind of companies, nobody in the team uh, understands what we are trying to do. And especially when they are scaling very fast, 
50% of the team is working together for the first time. So they don't trust, they don't know each other. And at the same time, they don't have a clue about what the company is trying to achieve. And we can understand what happens to execution when there is no uh, clarity at all. Right? And yeah, yeah, sense of purpose. Absolutely. Mark Bienhoff, um, um, when I met uh, him, I think um, 10 or 15 years ago in London, said that to have a successful company, you need the vision of the company to be known by everybody everybody yeah. in the company so it needs to be simple clear and everybody needs to know it absolutely is uh, one of the best entrepreneurs on the planet and especially with with a very strong marketing so it's always saying what is what salesforce stand up to so what what they believe in what are the values it's really uh, an amazing uh, example and and your in your uh, perspective you you talking about the scalability of sales you also talking about having a, a revenue function who is able to articulate and align uh, business development marketing sales uh, product uh, in in some cases um, what is what what are in your perspective the most difficult PPs to hire on this interval from 1520 to 50 or uh, when are new in, uh, in AR? Um, I think um, VP sales very difficult. Yeah, very very difficult because um, also good um, VP sales for EMEA is different from the VP sales for the US and VP right. sales um, in Asia. So. Um, I think the uh, biggest challenge of a CEO um, when he wants to scale the business is um, to recruit um, the right kind of leaders in the sales team. Um, uh, the CRO is also absolutely key when you scale. Um, and I would say less when you have a smaller business, but when you grow, um, marketing is um, very, very important because um, as we said, the vision needs to be understood by everybody in the company, but needs to be also uh, clear and transparent in the outside world. And um, the marketing can also help in many, 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 many companies um, drive revenues faster. So I would say these are the three key functions. Then at the same time as an investor, you want a very strong CFO, of course. Um, so um, if you um, have a business of, 20 to 50 million, you have quite a lot of people, the structure gets quite complicated and you need the reporting to be very clear. So then the CEO gets some clear KPI so he can execute. Absolutely. It's usually a lot of entrepreneurs ask when is the time to bring that uh, CRO and of course always the, um, the old school question about when to bring the COO and what functions and what kind of style of COO should bring. Uh, but let, let's start with the CRO. When do you think is usually at, at what kind of ARR or it depends on other factors that we should consider to bring the, the CRO? Because sometimes we also might have the temptation of complicating too much the structure and turn the company um, too heavy in terms of, uh, of overhead. Uh, or of salaries of leadership team? Yeah, I would say 25 to 30 million. Got it. You want a CRO. Um, and the CO? I think the CO depends how strong um, is the CEO mm -hmm. at delegating. Um, and um, I would say also it depends on what type of businesses you have. Some right. businesses are, are lighter on operations than others. Um, normally, I would say, um, you would want to see around 40 to 50 million um, revenue uh, company. And we haven't spoken much about the CTO, but in most of the cases, um, the CTO was there at the start. 
and can scale yeah. the company. So he's an absolute key element in the company, but it's less of a challenge for us as investors because um, he's, um, he's started the business, he started the product, he's scaling with the company. Um, if you have a company where the CTO can't scale with the product, then it's very complicated. It's a very good case. And I think that it's, it's a topic for the entire episode and especially uh, founder conflicts and how to handle uh, the founding team issues with the new leadership teams uh, issues uh, as we as we scale, and going to the second topic, which is much more related with strategy and focus, and also in a certain way, cash. Uh, I'd like to start uh, with um, with the triple to double free uh, rule. So for the ones who are uh, listening to the show who don't uh, know the rule, um, it was uh, a rule created by. Hagram from uh, Battery Ventures, if I'm not wrong, uh, a partner of Battery Ventures, uh, who said that uh, some of the world-class SaaS companies in the world, uh, like Salesforce, Net, uh, NetSuite, or uh, ServiceNow, uh, show a trend, which is after 2 million ARR, they are able to triple two times from 2 to 6, 6 to 18 million, and then uh, double three times from 18 to 36, 36 to 72, 72 to 144 or 100 million plus, which is the goal of a venture back business from five to seven, seven to 10 years to, to get there. So which means that uh, usually the entrepreneurs are always facing the pressure of being able to double or triple the business every single year. Do you think this is uh, something that it's really the game uh, or it depends on, on from business to business. So what's your opinion about the rule? Well, first we invest in later stage companies. So I would say okay. we arrive in a company when um, if they can do double three years in a row, we're right. <laughs> we can't expect a company at 20 million tripling uh, three years in a row. Um, the doubling for us um, is already a very, very strong growth. We target 50% um, growth plus for our company. Um, the second point is this rule um, was applied to US companies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think in Europe, um, you would be challenged to find a lot of companies growing at that pace. Um, but um, I think um, in Europe, what we should focus on is um, trying to grow companies over 50% for the fast growth companies. Um, I mean, when you're at 15, 20 million, if you can go by 50% per annum plus, it's good. Um, for example, Depop is going faster than that. AirHelp is going faster than that. Um, and then um, for us as investor, what is very important is can this company succeed in the US? Uh, because we come later stage, uh, so the valuation is higher um, so for us to have a very strong exit, you need most of the time at the level we invest um, to see some success in the US, because this is mm -hmm. when valuation starts becoming very, very exciting. This is when you have US investors very excited. This is also when you potentially have um, an IPO on NASDAQ, which is very attractive. So mm -hmm. when you go late stage, uh, succeeding in the US um, is very, very important. And um, I think um, in the example you gave um, of 2, 6, 18, 36, um, and then 72 articles and 144, they started looking at Europe. So this is applied to US companies starting to look at Europe um, between 18 and 36. And, um, and, and then they say, you know, um, a battery that you should focus on one market, very deep on one market to succeed, and then you go to the next market in Europe. We, um, in Europe, um, when we have companies at 15, 20 million, they've already succeeded in two or three markets. 
So um, this is quite a challenge it had to overcome. You very rarely find a company that is at 20 million revenue and uh, operating only in one market. And, and, and then they need to um, go to a different culture, which is the US, build a different team for the US market, um, face strong competition in the US and succeed there. And so for us, this is one of the main challenge of a successful investment. And also to, um, very often we would invest in a company that is doing well, and there's a big US investor coming in to take them to the US. Uh, and for us, the key question at the investment committee, should we invest, not invest? Because it's a big um, uptick on uh, the price we paid in the first round. And, and the key decision here is, will they succeed in the US with this round? Correct. This is very interesting. And uh, I imagine that, so and maybe the next question that you did, that, that you were sharing before, you were commenting that uh, it's important to have a, a very strong VP of sales immediate and a, a VP of sales US. And uh, as we scale, if we, if we get to Asia Pacific, uh, we also need to have a, a team to target it. But you, as you were saying, the majority of the cases that come from Europe try to scale in, in the US. I would say that a uh, different market in Europe like Spain, which also goes a lot to Latin America, uh, and that's being a lot of success there with a follower strategy of being trying to, to be bought or acquired by the incumbent, which usually is based in, in the US uh, or, or usually in the US, but sometimes in, in Europe uh, as well. So when you buy Southern Europe uh, plus Latam uh, as part of the deal uh, and you do the, um, the exits, but very few companies uh, from my experience so far has been able to consider Asia Pacific uh, as a market to, to scale. What, what is your experience uh, there, especially on the, I would say the 50 to 100 million uh, ARR uh, challenge? Because you almost are able to get there without, uh, if, you, if you do just UK and the US. Right? So what we find is um, most companies between 50 and 100 million are going to look at Asia. And so before that, not much, um, except um, if you say that, um, you know, a lot of the UK companies will look at uh, Australia very early on, which is a very similar market to the UK market. But um, if you start looking at um, China, um, Japan, Singapore, I would say normally is around 50 million. Having said that we have a business um, called Mura, uh, doing $35 million of revenue, and they do a very large, um, their revenues in Japan as we speak. So, um, because sometimes you have some regulation in one market, or you have some opportunity in one market um, where it makes sense to invest early on. But uh, normally I would say 50 million, and then uh, if you want to go to China, it's full of challenges. Um, and um, this is a completely different topic, but, um, yeah. It's not an easy expansion, China. Absolutely, and um, and this is typically, and I would say that even in earlier stages of growth, it can be even more complex. So when companies are trying to get to ten million and usually invest later on, but I imagine that even between fifteen to twenty to fifteen million, where where you have more expertise and uh, experience on your, on your portfolio, sometimes we can get to uh, the temptation of trying to do too many geos, too many verticals, um, too many use cases, and this will slow down our growth. Too many languages uh, with, with the... So uh, usually, uh, 
what is your perspective as an investor and how can you how do you try to help the team and be part of the team as you were saying before uh, so they they don't go to too many battles and they go to the battles where they can win uh, the championship or or the game right yeah it's it's a huge problem in europe um, in europe we want to sell platforms um, in the us they sell one solution so um, they sell one solution, they understand the pain point of the customers, they put the marketing team, the sales team, and they go very, very deep and they win the market. In, in Europe, we have a platform that can have 12 solutions at the same time, we can do everything. So focus is a big topic um, around, um, around the board. Um, so there's um, technology focus, product focus, and then market focus. Um, uh, the biggest mistake you can make is uh, going at the same time in three, four, five countries um, and choosing the current countries uh, properly is very challenging um, because um, one, um, you have to um, decide, you know, the attractiveness of your product in the market, but two, you have to see if you can recruit the right people in that market. Is there a good ecosystem for new technology, for growth of new technology? Um, and three, um, some countries are just um, slower to adopt um, new technologies. So um, what we have seen with our companies is um, main focus being on um, the countries which have the largest amount of population, which is kind of Germany, France, the UK. Um, going to Nordics, you have some very large corporates. So if you have a SaaS business, it makes sense if you sell big solutions to go to the Nordics. Mm -hmm. um, um, Spain um, is um, growing uh, very fast as we speak um, on technology. Italy is a bit um, uh, more behind uh, so far in Europe. And then you have lots of developments being created from um, Eastern Europe where you can tap into some great solutions. But then I would say very quickly, um, you have to look at the US very, very quickly when you're at 20, 20 to 30 million um, there is really a need if you want to be a big company to look at the US. Um, uh, AirHelp is now expanding also in Brazil, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very, very attractive market. Um, so I, I, I would say from our companies, what we've seen is really um, first country outside Europe is the US. You have a little bit of Brazil. And then in um, Asia Pac, um, you have Singapore, Malaysia, and Japan. And, um, and China is, is very complex. So this is kind of, you need to have a very long-term plan. You need to have a local partner um, and you need to make sure that you're going to be able to execute um, confidently um, in Japan, in China, sorry. What we had quite a lot five years ago, but much less now is Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, I, we don't see our companies um, uh, going uh, or expanding in Russia very rapidly at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. So I would say there's really the US is, you know, as, as an investor, are we going to be able to succeed in the US? Is there a big competitor that is going to crush us? If yes, how can we get um, uh, a share uh, of the pie? Right, right. And you didn't mention India for any specific reason or the same of China? Um, India is um, a very large market, obviously. Um, I think it's very difficult um, to execute in India. Um, I think you have some great Indian um, tech businesses. Um, you have some, uh, some of the best entrepreneurs on the planet are Indian. 
Um, but for a European company to uh, go to India and succeed, um, well, we haven't had any of our company doing it, basically. So it's very difficult <laughs> to say that. Um, I, I think there's a very important point um, also that we should not forget, and we very often forget as investors, is a company is um, the company itself, um, everything it can do uh, within the company, but it's also its market. And um, we as investors, um, we need to remind our entrepreneurs that um, um, a good reason why um, that company will grow is because the macroeconomic environment is also positive. And, mm -hmm. and today, uh, investors like me who have a bit more experience, having gone through you know, 2000, 2001, 2007, 2008, um, mm -hmm. we are also telling our entrepreneurs, you know, you can execute perfectly well, you can do everything right, but if you have a headwind with the macroeconomic environment, you're going to be challenged. So um, I think um, we're also warning our entrepreneurs that um, you know, the, the clock is ticking on the recession and they need to be aware of that. Um, and they need to be careful. Um, you talked about cash early on. Um, we all know that um, in an economic downturn, cash is king. And um, so these entrepreneurs need to be aware that at some point um, in the next three years, they're going to face an economic climate, which is going to be very different from what we have today. Oh, that's very, very, very good point. And um, just a, a last question to, 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 uh, to close this, this topic of focus, much more related with especially SaaS business, um, having to serve three main segments, uh, small business, mid-market, and enterprise. And usually, uh, if they try to do this too early at the same time, it's usually a recipe for disaster. Um, and we also have examples of the opposite, going uh, starting with uh, enterprise and going downstream. But usually, it's more common to see the, the opposite happening, going uh, upstream. But what, what is usually your experience there? So where to start, should we try to cover the free? Should we really focus on one of the segments uh, in terms of size of the company? My experience, this is not where the mistake is done. The mistake is done on pricing. Hmm. Um, if you misprice your product from the start, but you sell it to an SME, uh, medium-sized business or a large, you're never going to be able to move out of a mispriced product. As a SaaS business, this is where you have to be very, very careful because um, you start, you have you know, 500,000 of revenue and you want to get to 2 million ASAP so you can get your pricing wrong. Uh, and this is where um, you can make big mistakes. You can have a great technology that is mispriced, never going to scale. Um, I think um, going for very large corporates when you're very, a very small business is virtually impossible. Um, so obviously, um, it's much better to start with smaller tickets to um, medium-sized enterprise um, than going for kind of multi-million dollar sales uh, when you have you know, one or two million um, in revenues and you have uh, 25 right. people. The large corporate um, doesn't understand um, how small companies work um, because they don't have all the processes and a small company doesn't understand how a big company work because they find them you know, far too cumbersome with paperwork, with time and all this kind of uh, step and processes. So it, it's a very difficult world, but the pricing is the most important. Okay. We are a little bit uh, uh, derailing our time in, in the podcast, so I will jump uh, execution, but uh, I will still cover 
cash, which is very linked to this discussion. And in terms of execution, uh, as, as you were saying, uh, sometimes we fail because of the, the quality of execution, but sometimes we also fail because the direction that we decided to move. So we can, as you were saying before, we can be executing very, very well as a team. And if we are going into the right direction or with the, with the wrong macro environment, we can be uh, beaten uh, as well. And sometimes it happens uh, in between round, uh, rounds that we are too excited after Series A or Series B or Series C, new cash coming in uh, to fund our expansion plans. And we make a mistake in the first nine to 12 months or six to nine, and revenues are not showing any trend that they will uh, go up or have 50% of growth or, or 2x. And then everyone is uh, kind of crazy and trying to cut costs and go for uh, a bit of the positive. Uh, so how, how do you see those kind of almost uh, excitement and depression uh, mindsets coming to the board meeting or to the weekly uh, leadership team meetings? Uh, and how can we help? So because usually it, it really goes through, uh, let's speed up, put all the money, uh, on, on the expansion and then let's cut everything until we, we, we sort out how to fix the growth machine or the expansion plan that, that are not working out. Well, first of all, um, in this situation, you have different um, environments in Europe. Um, some are more flexible than others. So if you have this problem in the UK, it's very different than if you have this problem in France. Okay. In France, um, you know, if you have uh, 200 people and um, you need to reduce your workforce, you just can't. Flexibility <laughs> is not there. In the UK, um, you have much more flexibility. So you can't generalize. Uh, right. You have to see um, uh, the country you're in before um, you take a decision. Um, the other point is very often linked to a question of execution. Mm -hmm. So, um, we, uh, uh, as investors, we need to see early, if we can, the signs of uh, execution not being delivered uh, according to the plan. And then um, how um, quickly we can respond depends very often on the governance of a business. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge you will have is when you have an entrepreneur who is so successful um, that there is limited governance at the board. Uh, and therefore, um, nobody around the board will see the early sign of uh, execution not being delivered according to what you were expecting. And then by the time you realize the scale of the problem, um, uh, there's two, two situations. Obviously, there's one situation where you shut down the business. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, it happens more often than you think with very successful companies because um, they've been so successful going to, let's say, 30 or 40 million, then when they start to fail for whatever the reason, um, it's more difficult to see very quickly um, because the success has been so strong in the past. Um, but for us, um, what we try to do is obviously then to assess the situation very quickly with <clears throat> sorry, external kind of reviews because obviously something went wrong in the business. So um, external reviews can be some management consultant, but very often what we try to do is bring some um, external managers, um, mm -hmm. CEOs, VP sales, 
um, who can uh, go and spend a week with the company and tell us, well, this is what I think is happening here. This is this person, this person cannot scale with the business. Or, so this is what we're trying to do. And um, what we also um, do with most of our companies, we put chairmen in place who are um, coming from um, a non-professional mm -hmm. background. So um, if you have a chairman who's an operational background, he will be able to um, uh, ring the alarm bells faster saying, listen, you know, we, we just raised 25 million. The idea was to go from 20 to 40 million. And we are on kind of on the path of going from 20 to 25. Something is not right here. We need to just adjust uh, the situation. So I think these are the kind of the three levers we have. Um, and then um, you need to have enough uh, money around the table to reinvest, to sort out the problem and take the business to the next step. Of course, I, I will not, not ask what, what happens when uh, money is missing and, and milestones are not there to, to raise a new, uh, a new round. Uh, but I, I assume that, uh, again, it's, it's the free levers. We need to, to find out a solution with, with the resources available as always. It's, it's part of the equation. Um, so let, let's go for the, our favorite question and the last one of the show, uh, which is, if you would have the opportunity to meet Olaf uh, 20 years ago when you started investing with Draper and, and now TempoCap, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Um, hmm. I would say trust your, um, your views more. When you're young, um, you have all the people around the table um, that can go wrong. <coughs> Sorry. And um, if you have a strong instinct or if you review the case and you feel very strongly about something, trust yourself. This is what I would say uh, first. And the second is um, it's all about people. It's really about putting great people in the right position uh, as an investor if you want to succeed in uh, venture capital. So I think this would be the two kind of uh, advice I would give myself when I was 30. Got it. Awesome. Thank you so much for making the time, Olaf, to share your experience with the community. Well, thank you very much. And very nice talking to you. Uh, likewise. And to our community, thanks for being there. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed so much as I, as I did with uh, our conversation with Olaf Austin, uh, managing partner at TempoCap. And we keep here to help you scale from 2 million to 100 million ARR. See you soon and keep scaling.